As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone, today is the 17th episode of our daily podcast, A Moment of True Decolonization, while we are so many of us in confinement. And our guest is uh, Ney Cesurinho, who is a writer and a literary critic. Uh, she's the daughter of Lao refugees and was raised in the province of Quebec and spent several years in Saskatchewan. Her writing explores food, nature, and colonialism. She is currently working on her first novel, a modern fairy tale set in Southern Asia, and an art project on Asian portraiters. She writes in French and English and is based in Connecticut. Uh, hello, Ney. Hello. How are you? I'm good. As, as good as it can be in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. We're, we're not going to say more than that because we don't we don't talk about the pandemic on this podcast. <laughs> no, that's too much. There's already too much out there. Um, so we'll preserve our feelings. And but uh, instead, we're going to talk about something extremely interesting. I think uh, we your bio already sort of sets the tone when we when I was saying that you're working on a fairy tale. And uh, from there, this is all yours. Tell us what your moment of true decolonization is about. So I I am the I am a mother of two children and my eldest is a, is a girl. She is seven years old. And fairy tales have always been a big part of my life as a writer, but also has uh, the daughter of uh, Lao refugees because folk tales and fairy tales are uh, very much part of our oral traditions. And so it was a natural fit that as my kids grew up that I would share fairy tales with them. And um, that I would, s and then from then, there were questions arose in, in terms of what I was passing down within those fairy tales. Because a fairy tale is, um, you know, they're very strong images condensed uh, for easy transmission. But within each fairy tale, there's these values that are being passed down. Um, you know, like 200 years ago, it might have been about patriarchy, about, um, you know, for example, be, 
you know, be concerned about who you might marry because this person could be a monster, could be uh, something very scary. And then how do you cope with that? Which values do you assign to yourself and to this position? And yet it's just a simple fairy tale, but it, you know, it gets to be passed down. And so from then, I came to analyze more closely um, just how we told stories, how I told stories at home and looking at the way my daughter was playing. And for me, a moment of uh, decolonization starts at home in small, quiet ways as well, which I think matter just as much as the big actions that are more visible uh, in the outside world. And Lisa Lowe, who is a, a professor here in, uh, at Yale nearby, uh, she wrote a book called The Intimacies of Four Continents. And there's a great chapter about literature, about the book Vanity Fair uh, more specifically, but I like her expression to reconstellate a world. And it's what I've been trying to do with my children is to reconstellate their world with images and objects that don't hide away their story. For example, we were talking about having tea my daughter is seven, she loves her tea set, she loves sitting for tea. But we, but in all the stories where there's tea sets or in playtime, we don't really explain where tea comes from. It is just, you know, it's abstracted. The, all the movements that it took for this image, for a little girl taking tea, in a, Victor in a princess Victorian dress at home has been erased. And this to me wasn't just performative, it was true because we are, I am Asian, you know, we do grow these things in Asia. And the fact that she received these stories with my part of the world erased from that history completely, that to me was shocking because it was so small and so simple. And yet with just that very traditional play, you, you know, you've managed to erase a whole culture behind it. And so now when we play, the way it looks is that we talk about where things come from. We, when I say we reconstellate our worlds, I will talk about the farmers or the people who live over there, uh, people like my grandparents who grew rice and the silk that we wore the all the silk and the cotton the fabric of the dresses that she loves so much to wear in her play the the weaving the women who wove them 
and how they were carried by boats to England and in, in ways that she can understand. And I think that's what it means to reconstellate your home with these little parcels of history that don't exist anymore in these fairy tales or these these playtime or or anything like that and through that i get to explain it opens the door for the future to be able to explain more complex things about how we got to be here in the first place how you know how how we get to be in a position where we play with these goods and how we you know whether it's the sugar in her tea and her in her chocolate the chocolate where it comes from uh, how much water it takes to make chocolate and it's not trying to be a stick in the mud it's not trying to i think a lot of people think you'll ruin her childhood let magic be magic and and i think saying that is neglecting what stories do when we say you know you take the magic away when you explain these things of childhood you take innocence away but i think it's the opposite i think hiding violence underneath magic is robbing them of innocence because eventually when they are confronted to that idea then you know it upends their world they're not prepared for it and children have a very high capacity to understand the dark in the world all their movies are about trying to strive despite i mean how many orphans are there in these stories they're all orphans most of them are but and i don't think that's I don't think that robs them of magic. I think it's the opposite. I think it offers them an opportunity to look for a different path. And through these objects, through how they manipulate these objects later on, I think then it sets a course for action. I think a lot of times when we look at the past or we look at a domestic setting, we tend to view it as being passive. And by assigning passivity to the transfer of values and knowledge that is done at home, it not only diminishes the real transfer or transmission that's being done by parents at home, but by communities as well uh, and these stories that, that are passed down. And so I think that's why I'm always a little bit iffy when people think that just because you don't see an action that it is passive or you know when i tell the story a fairy tale for example where it seems like the girl or the protagonist isn't reacting very much throughout the story i ask my children to identify the moment where the protagonist 
makes a moral decision to either engage in cruelty or not to engage in cruelty. And that is not passive. To make that choice is not passive. And it is something that eventually, I think, leads to action. And I think that's just as important as the end product of that process. I think the beginning is often forgotten for its importance. And I think in literature, we see, like when she talks about Vanity Fair, for example, she talks about the fabrics that this upper class family uh, has surrounded themselves with in, in the bedroom and how, you know, it is about culture being a commodity. I try, like the, we, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit early about the difficulty of um, intercultural um, relationships. And not just that, but the fact that obviously we, I like the expression minoritized instead of minorities where, you know, we are, yeah, my, my, my culture is is considered outsider culture and you know therefore uh we're still striving for normal like a, a sense of i hate the word normalcy uh, there's not a good word but i guess like mainstream acknowledgement that you know especially in 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 these times to me it comes the way i do the reconstellation of it is through objects the reappearance of objects and rituals that come from my culture. Uh, we have an outfit for her that is made of the fabric from my family's country. And so when she plays princess, if she wants to play princess, she does not only have the option of being you know, an English princess, she gets to be, she gets to see, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but the representation at the level of childhood matters a lot. I remember growing up and not having a doll with black hair, with dark hair, and that alone broke my heart for many years because I did not exist then if and then when I did exist as a doll form I was ugly and I was you know um either robotic or savage or barbaric you know and to reconciliate who will objects means to bring these things that I grew up with that my parents passed down to me whether it's a rice basket that was woven and the 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 consequence of that touch of being able to touch it to know that it's real that it exists it's it's powerful thing and to implement rituals around these objects as well it i talk a lot about the cadence of of a culture you know, when you eat food with a rice basket, 
it's not the same rhythm as eating a sandwich. And so there's this whole value system that is passed down with the rice basket because we sit on the floor and often the basket is shared. You don't sit down alone with your own plate. It is a family. Um, It's a communal experience necessarily because you share the basket. And, um, And also doing, you know... the fact that we celebrate, um, no, now we can't, but this month would have been Lao New Year, the Lao Lunar New Year, and now we can't because of the, but we also celebrate that. And I tell her the story of how Lao New Year came to be, and that also changes the cadence of time for her, because now it's not just Christmas and New Year, or whatever it is that she learns at school, But now she has this notion that in the spring, there's a renewal and it changes the the pacing and the rhythm of her life as well. And to be able to function between two speeds, I think, is um, it's a way what we transfer is not always visible. There's a rhythm, there's a cadence, there's a all these things and stories that we took for, we take for granted. I guess that's why I'm trying to, I mean, it's an ongoing work. It's not, you know, it's not something I have answers to. It's something that I'm realizing over time as my children are growing, all the invisible things that are part of these constellations and how to move these objects so that when we do add an object into our world, that the value system around that object and the rhythm associated associated to that object also affects the way she makes decisions. Great. <laughs> well, thanks. I I love how we I love how we hear the how we hear them in the background while you're while you're speaking. It really it really adds some uh, some ambiance to it. Yeah. As uh, I'm glad you can hear them. <laughs> It might give you trouble during editing, though. No, no, of course not. Of course not. And I can, uh, I can also orient our listeners to the to the special issue we did in uh, a few months ago, our issue twenty six, uh, called the Ch- Children of the World Unites, that was made for uh, eight to thirteen years old. Uh, although uh, it although seven could work, I'm sure. <laughs> I thank you again for, for your time on the, on this Sunday. Uh, thanks again very much. Thank you, Leopold. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Phenomenalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.